What's up, MCC? How are you guys doing? Good, good, good. Hey, if you're joining us online, thank you for taking some time out of your weekend to find us, whether it's YouTube, Facebook, or somewhere. Hopefully this has a good shelf life and you just stumbled upon this wherever it is that you may be. Hey, um, this weekend here in America is this weekend that we call uh, Martin Luther King Weekend. And I want to pay a little bit of honor uh, to him because I think he was a man who preached what I refer to as, and many other uh, pastors or scholars refer to as, a cross-shaped gospel. And what I mean by that is he was a man who said, because we have been vertically restored to God, God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, that now enables us to live reconciled lives horizontally with each other. Regardless of if we are white to black, rich to poor, young to old. Despite the differences that we may have, we can actually be brought together and it's the gospel that does that. And for us as a church, that's the same reality that we live in. In the time between now and when Jesus returns to to really set up his kingdom reign here on earth as it is in heaven, we are called to have the love that God has given us be reconciled to each other. And as I was thinking about how we're doing at that as a church and what we need to do more of as a church, this image came to mind, and I wanted to show you it today as we remember someone who gave their life for our unity. This is a picture of two of our elders. Now, these two guys could not be any further apart from each other in regards to where they began. One began in Africa. And one began in Alabama. I mean, literally. You couldn't get any more crazy, you know, further apart than that. But what we see here is two men just not just holding a hand for a picture. But you see two men who are the leaders of our church, unified together, praying. These two men are Craig and Tunde. Two men that every single Sunday before you log in online or you show up in person are on their knees praying for you and those who would hear the message of the gospel here through MCC. And when I think about where, where does reconciliation start, where, where does uh, reconciling of the races start, and where does it begin, where, where does healing happen, I firmly believe that it's not in reading a new book, that it's not in voting the right person in, that it's not in you know, some reform, but it's actually a thing that begins with prayer. And so I want to begin there as well and pray for us today. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that by your red blood shared on the cross, we can all, regardless of our skin color, stand before you white as snow and hopefully, God, united. And Father, I pray more than that we voice opinions online, more that we uh, think thoughts as we're in our vehicles or in our homes and around our dinner tables, that we would go to you, God, and pray that you would allow us, God, to be people who come together, that you would allow MCC, God, to be a church that proves to a world looking around that it actually is possible for people who look different, think different, vote different, feel different, and fear different to be united under your gospel. And Jesus, we pray that that gospel is what's preached and proclaimed today and that that gospel is what changes lives. In your name, Jesus, amen. All right, so we are in a series called One Minute After You Die. And we've been answering this question, what happens one minute after I die? And the whole reason we're talking about this, because we believe that what you believe about the afterlife determines how you live your life. And so what we're going to be diving into today comes at this point where Jesus is teaching in these things called parables. 
Now, a parable, the way I teach it to my little boys is a parable is a little story with a big truth. All right? You, everybody got that so far? Let's do it together. A parable is a little story with a big truth. Okay. Now, here's why Jesus had to teach them in parables. A few guys come to him, and Jesus is this kind of towards the end of his life here on earth as he's living out his ministry. Some people come to him, and they ask Jesus the question that we're trying to answer in this series. They say, Jesus, how will we know when the end is coming, and what is it going to be like? Essentially, they're asking, Jesus, what happens when we die? What's the end going to be like? Now, Jesus, he doesn't begin with parables. He actually begins by talking about these end times, he talks about this destruction, and it's very apocalyptic sound, and he even goes into this thing called the uh, abomination of desolation, and, and everybody looking at him are kind of looking at you know, him like you're looking at me, going like, what? what, what I, I haven't read that yet. Where's that at? And so Jesus goes, okay, I'm talking to blue-collar people. I know this may be being a little bit too much for you. Let me tell you a story that will hopefully answer that question and point to what the end is going to be like, and not just tell you what the end is going to be like, but tell you what you need to do in light of that. And so today, we're going to be diving into a passage of Scripture that walks through and talks through that. Because what Jesus does is he goes into four parables to answer that question. We're going to specifically lean into one of them today. But as he begins each of these parables, he says this phrase. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like... In other passages in the Bible and other Gospels, he, Jesus over and over again, if you look at his red letter words, it says the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of God is like, or eternal life is like, and you see these things. And what I want to hopefully do before we dive into that is I'm going to show you something that I believe will hopefully help you be able to understand the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven and how those things are laid out in the Bible and what they really mean for our lives now. Last week, we began to introduce this idea that is very in plain sight in the Bible, but it's often, oftentimes missing in churches, that the kingdom of heaven is not just this thing that we go to when we die, but the kingdom of heaven, if we're believers in Christ, that that is something that exists here and now in this world. That even in Jesus' prayer, he said, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so what I want to do, I'm going to show you this video. It's around seven minutes long. I want you to lean in. I want you to turn the volume up if you're watching at home. This is going to be something that I think will give you a great explanation and it will visually illustrate this way better than I can. So take some time, lean in, and pay attention as we try to understand better what the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven is really all about. Check it out. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning. 
where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world, and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out, and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible was all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. Literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice 
has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus? Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. Okay, so hopefully, again, I, I could have never explained that to you better than that, and I could have never doodled and drawn as good as that. You know, you've seen me on a whiteboard before. It's bad. What I hope you got in there, and what I hope you're catching on to as we get ready to dive into the parable that we're going to unpack today, is that we live in this time where those kingdoms are partially overlapping. And the parable that we're going to be talking about today it's about how and what we should live our lives as until those kingdoms fully overlap and kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven truly are the same thing. As Jesus comes and fully reinstates, not you know, us, again, the thing that made us all kind of chuckle, the little angel fly, or the, you know, the person flying over to the kingdom of heaven, but those things being restored and those things becoming one. What we're going to be talking about is the life that we live in the meantime in between when that happens, and how Jesus expects us to live and to operate. And I think if we can pay attention and lean into this parable, I think it can revolutionize and really change the way we live our lives here on this earth so that we long for and look forward to the day when those two things fully overlap. If you got a Bible, we're going to start out in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. Matthew 25, verse 14. Again, This is a collection. It's best to take these parables as a whole collection together. We're going to lean into this one because I think it gets definitely to the heart of what Jesus is after here as he's answering this question. How do we live knowing that there is going to come this moment of judgment, that there is going to become this end? What do we do with the life that we have here and now? This is what he says. Again, parable is a little story with a All right, let's see if we can find the big truth as I take us through this little story. He says, for it, now it there is the kingdom of heaven. That's what we just talked about. For it, he's talking about this this end times, it. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one, he gave five talents. To another, two. To another one, one. To each according to his abilities. And then he went far away. All right. Pick out some things in here and just kind of walk through this. We're going to read through it, talk a little bit, read through it, talk a little bit. First of all, he gave them whose property? His property. So, and again, I'm picking my words very carefully here. Everything that you have in this life is a blood-bought grace gift from Jesus. All money, all children, all time, all health, the chairs we sit in, Everything that we have in this life right now is a gift from Jesus, one that we are undeserving to have been recipients of. 
Okay? So it's the master's, and he's entrusting it to us. And again, Jesus is telling us this parable, not so we get caught up in the story, but so that we realize and understand that this applies to our own lives. So he says, he's giving them his property. And he comes in, and there's this master, and he calls in different guys, and he wants to entrust to them this stuff. So let's imagine a little bit here. He calls in the first guy. And the first guy comes in, first servant, and he's that beautiful combination of someone who is both a dreamer and a detail person. And he can dream up great ideas, and he can see them to, to, through to fruition. He responds to emails and text messages instantly. He is so prompt. And the master looks at this man and says, I am giving you five Five talents. Now, it's, under, it's important that we understand how much a talent was. A talent, if we equate it to our modern money, that would have been about a million dollars. Okay? So we're, we're going to come back to that in a second. So he gives this guy. He says, I'm giving you five talents. Hooks him up. Five talents. Next guy comes in. Not a dreamer. A little bit more blue collar of a guy. He sees him. He says, yeah, this guy's not going to come up with any crazy ideas, but I can trust this guy. I can depend on this guy to get the job done. Two talents. Next guy comes in. Two and a half hours late. Wrinkly shirt, Starbucks cup of coffee in hand, goes, I thought the meeting was at two. And the master's like, I should I kill you? What should I do here? He says, no, I'm going to give you a talent. And he gives that, that servant one. Now, I want you to understand, as this master is giving out these talents, the one who he gave five to would have been overjoyed ecstatic joy to have received one talent. Again, that's the equivalent of a million dollars. A servant was not entitled to anything. Uh, other translations, they, they, they actually don't even translate that word, they're a servant. They, they denote it as a slave. So he brings them in, and he gives all of them things that they never, ever could have deserved or could have earned on their own. And he gave them, and this is important in this, in this story, and this is a lot of time where the story gets kind of butchered. A lot of times there's, we can misunderstand it because the things that he has given them are called talents. And so when it talks about talent, it's not talking about like the ability to judge. You know, sometimes when you hear this passage, it's like, well, if you juggle, just juggle for Jesus. That's not what this passage is about. What it's more so about is understanding that this master, based off of his servant's abilities decides what to give to him. Now, at first glance, we can go, that's not fair. They all should have got the same thing. That would have been nice. Well, fairness is actually not that much of a kingdom concept. The reality is, more often than not, we are the ones who are always, more often than not, in the Bible, we are receiving unfair things to our advantage in the kingdom of God. And that's what was happening in the story. Again, none of them deserved anything, but they're receiving it based off of their abilities. In regards to our lives, okay, let me drive it home a little bit. What they're getting and what the master is putting them in charge of managing is not just money. See, they actually have to manage more than just money. They have to manage the time between when the master gives them the money and when he is inevitably going to return, okay? So they have to manage the money, they have to manage the time, and also, they have to manage their abilities. They have to manage how they can take this money that the master has given them and use it to advance not their own kingdom. Again, whose money is it? Not theirs. To advance his kingdom, his net worth, how much of an impact he is making. So he entrusted them, to make it simple in a way we can maybe remember it, they are entrusted to manage time, talent, and treasure, money. And friends, those are the exact same three things 
that God is entrusting every single one of us to manage. And in every single one of our lives, to varying degrees, God has given us some of those three things. Whether you are seven years old or you are 77 years old, you have those three things in your lives. And I believe those are the three main things that God is looking at us to say, I'm going to hold you accountable to how you manage these things. Now again, he is not so much concerned with how we manage them, but he's concerned with how and what we believed about who he was. And that's what led us to manage it the way we did. And so for you in your life, you've got time. You've got some sort of God-given ability. And also, you have money. And the fastest way to ensure that you mismanage all of those three things is to compare the amount that God has given to you to the amount that God has given to somebody else. That's the fastest way to ruin and to screw up what God has given you and to make sure you don't manage it well. Because what we don't see in this passage is these guys coming in, getting what they get, and then you know, going back and huddling up and, and arguing about how much they got or bragging or, you know, hashtag blessed, I got five talents. Like, you don't see any of that in this passage, but that's what we would have done. And so my call to us is to be people who take what God has given us and realize that I have been given what I have been given not to try to keep up with what other people have given, been given, but to use it to further the master's kingdom. And so we see this happen in this text. They take what they've been given. They know that they're going to be held accountable. Uh, they're going to be held accountable for how they do it. But they also understand what I hope you understand is that comparison is a thief of the joy that they would be given. So we see what happens after they have received this. Verse 16 says, He who had received five talents went out and at once traded with them and made five more talents. Okay, if you're underlining stuff in your Bible, underline at once. The principle I need you to know here, to understand here about what it means to follow God and to faithfully steward what he's given you, whether it's time, talent, or treasure, is that delayed obedience is disobedience. That knowing the right thing to do and then twiddling our thumbs is the same thing as saying, God, no, I won't. When you know what the right thing to do is and you refuse to do it, that is not just going, hey, yeah, I'm going to get to it. That's not just, I'm just classifying it as procrastination. It's called disobedience. So this guy, he takes what's been given to him and at once goes out and uses it and makes five more. Next guy, verse 17. He also, who had the two talents, went out and made two talents more. So again, he's not looking around at the five-talent guy going, doggone it, if I would have had five talents, think about all the things I could have done. No, he's saying, I'm going to take mine, take what I'm given, and I'm going to go make the most of it. Verse 18 and 19. But he who had received the one talent went out and dug in the ground and made and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Very important to understand and see in the story that there's a master who returns. And when he returns, he settles accounts. When he returns, there is accountability that is supposed to be had for what we did with what was given. And we see how this plays out for these three servants. And I hope you're beginning to see yourself in this story. Because in this room and watching online, you're one of three people. You're a five-talent person, a two-talent person, or maybe you're a one-talent person. 
And hopefully we, we see things in this story that, that take us to a place where with, regardless of what we've been given, we make the most of it. In verse 20, it says, And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents, and here I've made five talents more. And of course, this guy was the one who came forward first. It's like us, when you know, your boss goes out of town. And you just crush it while they're gone. You're making sale after sale or you're just implementing new strategies and everything else while they're gone. And are you putting out fires left and right that they don't have to walk into. And when they get back from vacation, you're the first one, you know, oh, how was your trip? Please ask me how things went while I was gone. Um, because you can't wait to brag about what you did with what they entrusted to you while they were gone. And I love how this guy starts out. He starts out with an attitude of generosity. He says, Master, you've delivered to me. He understands this, isn't some, this wasn't something I was entitled to. This is something that I didn't deserve. And I have the joy of receiving something I didn't deserve. Here's how I diligently and tenaciously went out and invested it so that your kingdom expanded. It goes on from there. His master sees him and he says, in verse 21, well done. Good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Look what he says there. He says, well done. And it's important to seeing what he does say is seeing what he does not say. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. He does not say, well done, good intentioned servant. You had a lot of good plans and you put some things together. He doesn't say, I'm so glad that you took the time to pray. And you just prayed over these talents and hope good things happen. Now again, I'm all for prayer. But sometimes we need to take what God's revealed to us in prayer and what he's revealed to us in his word and not use prayer as an excuse to not do anything and go. See, we, we serve a God who gets things done. And he says to these men, well done. I'm so thankful that that's the type of God we serve, that Jesus, when he was on the cross, as his nails, his feet were placed one on top of the other and nails were driven through them, that he didn't push up on the cross and go, I hope this works, but said, it is finished. The debt has been paid. It is done. I've given my life for them. And so in regards to our own lives, we live lives with a realization that God isn't going to really care a whole lot about our good intentions, as good as they may be. And I, for me, I, I think for us in, in a church world, like we know so much of the good things that we should do. We show up on Sundays, we log in on Sundays, and we hear so much of the good that we should do. And sometimes when we think that just being surrounded by and taking in and hearing about all the good things that we should do is enough. And we have a laundry list of all the things that we want to do. Even at the beginning of a year, we've got all these things that were good intentions. Man, these are the people I want to witness to. These are the people I want to serve. This is the money I want to give away. Here are all the things I want to do. And we, we'll write it out, put it in a journal, and everything else. But at the end of the day, we see clearly in this text that they weren't held accountable for their intentions, but they were held accountable for their actions. Actions based off of what they believed to be true and what they knew about this master. So we see the second one come in now. In verse 17, it says, So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. And he comes in, his master you know, shows up in verse 22 and 23, 
came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. I have made you two talents more. Again, same percentage of increase as the guy who was 10 because there was the same amount of responsibility given to them. Verse 23, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, and now I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I want you to see something again that he does not say here. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. He does not say, well done, good and fruitful servant. And oftentimes that's the way we think we should live our lives. I want to live a fruitful life, a life where I'm I'm doing things for God and I'm bearing the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I'm doing all these things. I live a fruitful life. But when the master shows up and welcomes them in, I want you to specifically hear what he is not saying. He does not say, well done, good and fruitful servant. Now, were they fruitful? You bet. To the tune of $7 million, they were fruitful. But he commended them for their faithfulness. And friends, what I want you to know, I want you to hear this. When the end of your life comes, it should bring you joy to know that you are not going to be judged based on how fruitful of a life you lived. You will be judged based on how faithful of a life you lived Faithful to who? Faithful to what? Faithful to Jesus. Faithful to what he taught. Faithful to what he commanded. Faithful to love people as he loved you. He calls us to be faithful. And that should allow some of the weight to come off our shoulders. To know that if I'm staying faithful to you, I may make mistakes along the way. Like, and that's life, right? If we're being faithful to somebody, if we're being faithful and like our heart is in the right place, our intentions are in the right place, And there are mistakes that are made along the way. More often than not, there is grace that abounds. And there will be grace that continues to abound for us, regardless of how fruitful our efforts are or not. God calls us to be faithful with what he's given us. To both of these men who saw return on what they had been given, he says, enter into the joy of your master. See, in regards to the kingdom of heaven, Over and over again, we see this truth as Jesus talks about what eternal life is. What is heaven? The blessing here is not in the fact that they got $7 million and he's going to give them a cut of it. The blessing here is that what it says, enter into the joy of the master. The blessing, the goal, the the, the end reward of eternal life is the joy of the master. It's being with God. Whenever whenever Jesus asks people or or people ask Jesus, what is eternal life? Over and over again, it's knowing the Father. As we went through that giant list of how to have eternal life last week, over and over again, know God, know God, know God, know God. Even in the parable that comes after this parable, the parable of the sheep and goats, when he says to the people who didn't feed the hungry, who didn't visit people in jail, who didn't give water to the thirsty, when he says to those people, away from me, he doesn't say, away from me, you didn't do these things. He says, away from me, I never knew you. And what I want you to know here is it in regards to that moment of judgment in your life where you will be held accountable for what you did with what you were given. It's equally important for you to know that you're going to have to stand and make that judgment as it is to know that God has your joy at the center of it all. He's not the type of God who wants you to begrudgingly live this life in a way that you're investing in his kingdom and not trying to build your own. 
He wants you to experience the joy of who he is. It's kind of like this. If, if I was to ask, you know, you, you came to me and you said, Trent, describe to me what marriage is like. And I said, well, about 10 years ago, I stood before God and people and I made a promise to love a woman and to stay married. And because I believe in values and I believe in sticking to my word, I have not gotten unmarried from her. You'd go, ugh. That sounds miserable. Like I'm single and I don't ever want to be married. That sounds, that sounds terrible. That's what marriage is. Like that's terrible. I don't want to do that. And a lot of us think that that's the type of life that God's calling to. In regards to like how I manage my time and how I manage my talent, my money. We think that that's, well, I got to. Well, I got to tithe. Well, I got to serve at church. Well, I got to use some of my gifts and abilities. I got to do it. What's it like to be a Christian? And a lot of us, it, when we ask, what's it like to be a Christian? Like, maybe we wouldn't say it out loud, but it sounds like how I describe being married just then. But if I was to answer that question, how I really feel, what's it like to be married? Well, it's amazing to have somebody who knows literally everything about me. See my good, my bad, my flaws, me at my best and me at my worst, and still chooses to love me and forgive me and to care for me. And as we've progressed, we've begun to get more and more on the same wavelength where we know what each other are feeling and we know what each other are thinking, even oftentimes before we communicate those things. And yes, there are some times when it is scary, when we make mistakes, and when I do things wrong. But I know there's grace, I know there's forgiveness. And I can't wait to sit in the rocking chair one day for the last time and know that we will spend eternity together as well. You go, oh, well, that's a little better. I could, I'm, okay, I'm okay with that. That sounds a little better. And see, that's what the master is after. That's what, the ser- that's what the servants need to understand. And when I'm talking about servants, I'm talking about us. The master is after our joy. He's wanting that joy to be something that is also contagious. And so in regards to your life and how we live and manage those things well, we don't do them from a begrudging part, like, oh my gosh, this is what I got to do. But it's, man, I get to. The master has, by his grace, given me something I could have never earned and I'd never, ever deserved. This is what I have received. I can't wait to multiply and invest this in this kingdom that is right now so that my little area, when that full renewal happens, my area already looked as close to fully renewed as it ever possibly could have looked before Jesus came in really made it official those are the first two servants and if again we were watching this on a movie you would hear the music shift and go from happy and joyful and it would be like on the show undercover boss when you know they, they have the things where the, the the good employees are in there and they're in the reveal and they did things great and they're walking away with like new cars and you know corporate training programs and promotions and scholarships for their children and then that guy at the workplace who's just an absolute jerk who's like yeah I hate this job I'm just doing it for beer money and I hate all my employees they're idiots you know it like and then they meet with the boss and you're kind of hoping that he just like fires them and flips the table over on them like right there in that moment like the scene changes as this servant walks in verse 24 says, he who also had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I know, you're a, I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. 
Here, have what is yours. You know that the opposite of faith is not doubt. The, you can have a lot of doubt and still make an amazing disciple of Jesus. You just pick up your doubts and you follow him. And the longer you follow him, the more those doubts go away. And eventually you stand before him, I believe, and you have no more doubts. You have full faith in him. That's what walking and following Jesus is. I mean, for goodness sakes, there's a whole apostle, like his name is Doubting Thomas, and like he's in the Bible. Doubts are not the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is fear. We see this on display with this servant. Fear led him to go, I'm not doing anything. I, I'm, I'm afraid. I, I, I can't, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, risk this. And he even makes, again, notice here, he is the only one who mentions the identity of the master. Now, as we have it in the text, don't read it as if what this servant is saying about the master is true. He's explaining to the master how he sees the master in his own mind. He's saying, in my opinion, you're a hard man, you reap where you do not sow, and you take advantage of things that are not yours. And for a lot of us, the mental image and the view of what we have God as is causing us fear that is unwarranted. And so he does nothing. Now we see how the master responds from this. Jump down to verse 26. His master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So again, as you see the master seemingly admit to being a jerk here, that's not what's happening. He's going, okay, even if you thought I was a jerk, why would you not put the money in the bank? You're, you're, he's like, basically what he's saying is, your excuse stinks. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. It doesn't fit here. And so, again, regards to our own lives, when we talk about time, talent, treasure, when we talk about those fears that we have, like we have fears right now. Again, if God's entrusted you and me with those three things to varying degrees to manage until the time when those two kingdoms, heaven and earth, fully overlap, how's that going? See, I'm willing to bet, and, and again, I, I, right now in a time like this, in regards to money, it's really easy to be afraid. And to, in regards to our finances, to operate out of a place of fear rather than faith. To say, ooh, gas has already gone up. I need to start hauling some stuff away. Oh man, I've already seen my taxes. This is already crazy. Or I see how things are going and I, I heard this theory and, and I need to do these things. All right, man, that we had a, a, a health crisis and now we're going to have an economic crisis. It's going to be 2008 all over again. Bar the door from a financial side of things. And I'm all for us being faithful stewards with the money that we've been given. But are you operating out of faith or fear? Because God's called us to live a generous, open-handed life. And if over the course of the last six to ten months, you've thought, ooh, I need to drop my tithe back, or ooh, I don't need to be as generous, or ooh, we can't take them out for dinner, or ooh, we can't go do this for the neighbors, or ooh, I can't pay for that kid's trip to camp, then 
I would question whether or not you're operating out of faith or fear in regards to your finances. Same thing with your time. How are we spending it right now? Like what we do with our time has gotten so different. And our abilities to invest. Again, God's given you the gifts and talents and abilities in this life so that it would impact other people. Like it's not for you, like he didn't give you any of the gifts and talents and abilities so that you could just wake up and look in the mirror and be like, dang, I'm a good artist. Look at that. Look at that paint, man. Look at, I see it. Like that. He didn't give you the ability to do that. He didn't give you the ability to sing so that you can do it in the shower where only you hear it. He gave you those things so they would impact and radically change other people's lives as well. And I, I mean, we're all with it. Like, it's been harder to go and use our talents to impact other people's lives because it's hard to connect with other people's lives. Well, can, uh, you know, I'd love to encourage you, but I guess I got to do that over Zoom. I'd love to love my neighbor, but I guess I'm going to have to put some stuff in their mailbox. And so we make convenient excuses during a COVID season to go, well, I can't really use my talents like I thought I used to could. No, you still can. It may mean you have to get creative, though. And don't use a temporary season to be your excuse to not use what God's given you. Because this season will come and this season will go. At the end of the day, God's still going to hold us accountable to what we did with it. Now from there, he obviously was operating in fear. Master calls him wicked and slothful. Now, wicked, we'll, we'll start there, okay? Where did this guy put his money? Dirt. <laughs> the other guys, I mean, we kind of put two and two together, they put their money in, in the bank. They put their money in investments. Banks and investments, they have the ability to be trackable, to keep record of, to have receipts. Dirt, not so much. You can't track dirt. Like, he's the only one. I know the tree. It's out in that field over the second hill, you know, by the third tree with the kind of the weird branch, kind of leans to the right. Like, he's the only one who knows about it. Now, I believe the master, and again, Jesus is telling this story on purpose. I believe he's calling him wicked because he knows that he wasn't banking on this Master, ever coming home, he says, I've just been given more money than I ever could have expected to ever have in my life. I'm going to take it, and I'm going to bury it. Worst case scenario, he comes back, and I give it back. No harm, no foul. Best case scenario, he doesn't come back. Million dollars. Balling a servant ever. That's what he's thinking. Then he calls him slothful, which is his way of saying, you're really lazy. You didn't... You, not only did you not know who I was, but you were also wicked. But on top of that, you were just lazy. That's what slothful means. Now, I, I don't know a whole lot of people who are slothfully lazy. I do know some people, and I see one when I look in the mirror most days, who are selectively lazy. And Jessica will tell you, I have enough discipline to wake up at 5 o'clock and go throw weights around in a freezing cold garage every single morning. But I do not have the same discipline to throw my socks and my gym shorts into the hamper. <laughs> Selectively lazy. Now, if you look at the story, as far as manual labor goes, he's the only one who wanted to know where the stuff was at, so I believe that he's the one who went and buried it. Okay, if a bunch of other, you know, helpers and other servants are the one who go out and bury it, well, you know, if something happens to him, well, they're going to kill him and go take his money. 
So in regards to like who actually puts blisters on their hand as far as work goes, the third servant, probably from a physically alone spectrum, worked harder than the other two guys. He had to go dig a giant hole to bury this, and he had to go dig it back up and bring it to the master. Now, he's not lazy from a I'm not willing to work hard side of things. He's lazy from a I'm only willing to do what's comfortable, not what is faithful. And man, that's where a lot of times I find myself. Doing what I know is the most comfortable, easy thing to do, the thing that I've almost mastered. And I'll continue to do that easy, comfortable thing that I've mastered to avoid doing the thing that God has called me to do that actually require some faith. And so sometimes, man, it's really easy to get all fired up and all worked up about going and serving and volunteering and doing church stuff, but actually not do the things it would require to see my faith grow. It's easy to get busy with hobbies for us, but to get lazy with relationships. It's easy to get really busy with work and lazy with our faith. To get really busy entertaining ourselves and, and lazy with loving our neighbor. To get comfortable. And then one day you come to church like this and some guy like me tells you that comfortability and faithfulness rarely go hand in hand. And so my hope is that you would be willing to risk the uncomfortable, faithful thing instead of the selectively lazy thing that you've grown to become a master at. And let God grow your faith so that your kingdom, or that his kingdom can grow in ways and through you in ways that you never saw it before. We see the outcome of this servant, unfortunately, in verse 28 through 30. It says, so take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. Again, we would say that's not fair, but that none of them were owed anything. For to anyone who has, more will be given. And he who has an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's an unfit, unfortunate end for this guy. And I want you to see some of the things that led to this. Fear. Operating out of a place of fear over faith. Living as if the king doesn't exist and also living as if he is never going to return. And thirdly, do nothing with what you've been given. And so in light of those things, I want to ask you a couple questions. I believe oftentimes questions lead more to you actually doing something with what we talk about than me giving you commands or pithy statements. So I want to ask you a couple of questions that hopefully, as you chew on them and digest them, lead you to actually change. First question, what talent do you need to dig up before it's too late? You've got something buried. All of us do. What is that thing that you have buried that your master Jesus, your father God, has given you that you've chosen to bury? Is that a fear you buried it? I don't know if you buried it out of fear. You may have buried it because you were lazy. You may have buried it because you never thought he was going to hold you accountable for what you did with it. And I feel strongly that I need to say this. Some of you, the thing that you have buried 
it kind of makes sense to bury because it's your past. And see, Satan will tell us in regards to our past, you need to keep that buried and in the closet. Nobody needs to know about those things. Nobody needs to know about who you were, you know, BC. Nobody needs to know about those things. Don't tell the grandkids. Don't tell your kids. They don't need to know about what you did in college. Don't tell anybody about those things because those are the things that you need to keep buried. Friend, one of the things that I found to be true in my life and so many others, oftentimes the things that we would say, hey, I want to keep these things buried, are the very things that God says, no, I want to bring those things into the light to show them that you once were blind and now you can see, that you once were lost and now you have sight. And nothing, friends, may advance the gospel more than you telling the story of how lost you were and how far Jesus brought you to where you are right now. For some of you, the thing you haven't buried, literally, you know, in the story, it might be money. And you might have buried some of the things that God has given you, financially speaking. And you have them hold away or in something, and you're saying, I am going to use this to build my kingdom. I'm going to use this to have the boathouse. I'm going to use this to build the lake house. I'm going to use this to have the beach house. I'm going to use this to have all these things. I'm going to invest this here at the sake of not building the kingdom of God. Whose kingdom are you building? A reminder, it's not your money. That means every spending decision is a spiritual decision. And our budget has to have a cross in it. it. Has to have sacrifice. We can't say that we budget as Christians and there not be sacrifice in our budget. Maybe it's time. I've buried some time. I don't, I don't want to do that. I, that would take too much time. I don't want to invest in that. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to call them. Every time I call them, it, you know, anybody else have those people in your life where like you don't have an hour, don't call them. Okay, we all laugh because we all, ha- we all know that person. If you're, la- you're not laughing, you're like, you're that person. <laughs> that person likely really needs somebody to talk to right now. Maybe it's a talent. Maybe it's something God ge- gave you as a gift or ability or natural ability or a dream in your heart. And you just bury that thing. And, you, and, and life happened, you know. You got pregnant at 17. You know, you, you had to have a family. You had to do some things. And you had to go get a real job. And you had to do these things. And I don't want to tell somebody today, um, you've got a dream buried because of a gift and a talent that God has given you. And it's time to go and dig that thing back up and pursue what God, God believe God is calling you to do. It kind of leads to the second question I would ask. Is this. What would you do for the glory of God if you knew it wouldn't fail? What would you do for the glory of God if you knew it wouldn't fail? Would you adopt that kid? Would you start tithing? Like, what, what would you do? It doesn't have to be something huge, like starting an orphanage. What would you do? Simple. What would you do with your time, with your talent, with the resources that God's given you if you knew it wouldn't fail? And then, you know, kind of the last question on that is, are you living out of fear or are you living out of faith? If you're living out of fear, well, you're still not going to do that thing. At the end of this life, we've got to know this. In regard to every decision you make, not about spending, not about time, not about talent, in regard to every decision you make, one of two things will happen. And this is, this is Scripture. In regard to every decision you make, it will either be met with regret our reward. 
The Bible makes it very clear that anything that we let go of in this life for the sake of the gospel, in heaven, we will receive a hundred times the reward, whatever we left to let go of, left to follow Jesus. Regret or reward, the choice is ours. And my hope, my prayer is that you understand the master is after your joy. And it may not feel joyful in the moment to let go of that thing he's calling you to let go of. It may not feel joyful to go spend the time where he's asking you to spend it. It may not feel joyful to go and use your talent to serve in children's ministry and commit to those things. It may not feel joyful to do those things. But my plea to you is that you understand that trading the momentary discomfort of what you experience in this earth for being banished into darkness where there is no light and there is weeping and gnashing of teeth is a very easy trade-off. Someone came to me and they said, Trent, we know you hate coleslaw, but if you'll eat coleslaw every day, this week, we will pay for your groceries for the rest of your life. Guys, there is no limit to the amount of coleslaw I would eat this week. So sometimes when you know how great the reward is, you're willing to sacrifice in the short and the momentary. And the only reason why we receive any reward is because Jesus was treated as the least of these. Jesus was treated as he was not the son of God so that you could be treated like you are a son and a daughter of God. And as we receive communion, that's what we celebrate. The fact that his body was broken, that his blood was poured out, as the Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And you, my friend, you were a part of that joy. And as you meet with him here in these moments, I pray you understand, recognize, and realize what he's bringing you to, what he's calling you to, to understand his identity, that he's going to return, and he's going to hold you accountable for what you did with what he's given you. And remember, the most important thing that he's given you is not your money, is not your time, and is not your talent. The most important thing that he has given you is himself. I pray that you would meet with him now. Jesus, be with my friends and family as we come to you around your broken body and your poured out blood. Draw us in to a deeper relationship with you than we ever have experienced before. In your name.